0: Welcome to Rising. I'm happy to be back in the studio with Brianna Joy Gray. Hello. Hello. Did you enjoy your little lark away from home? Uh, I did. I participated in a debate at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, and then I took a very early flight here this morning to get back in time for the show. Ugh, the I
1: dedication to the craft.
0: Better in person, right? <laughs> always, Just always, couldn't leave Robbie. you alone. Yeah. I, I appreciate it. It was empty up here. All right. Well, we've got updates on the Israel-Palestine news. Take it away.
1: Uh, well, yesterday, President Biden said the U.S. will not back a ceasefire until Ga- uh, in Gaza until Hamas-held hostages are released. Let's watch
2: the hostages for
0: ceasefire
1: deal did you and Katie Tour pressed the White House on the actual status of those hostages while interviewing administration spokesperson John Kirby yesterday let's
0: watch.
3: Um, What are you expecting in regards to the other American hostages and the other hostages in general? Is there anything that you can tell us about negotiations and whether there is an expectation that they will be released at some point? What I can tell you is that we are very hard uh, at work trying to get them released, particularly our American citizens that we know are still being held hostage. Uh, there are active communications going on uh, as you and I speak. I want to be careful that I don't get into too much detail or context about them, lest I say something that makes it harder for us to achieve their release. But we are working on this very, very hard. Later, Ter grilled Kirby on the question of American citizens trapped
1: in Gaza. Let's watch that.
3: What can you tell us about the status of the Americans who are who were in Gaza, the American Palestinians visiting family, the ones who have not been able to get out? We're working on that very, very hard too. I wish I could tell you that at such and such a time that gate's going to get open and they're going to the get all out? out. What's but the whole? We out? are working. There are, there are regional concerns, regional uh, security concerns that we're trying to work through. We've got a, uh, Ambassador Satterfield, the special envoy, whose whole job is to get the humanitarian assistance in and to see if we can get some of those Americans out. He's working it on the ground as we speak. We hope that we'll have some re- resolution soon so that we can get those folks safe pastures out, get them on their way, get them home. Uh, they say that they don't feel like the American government is prioritizing them. They see the, the, the planes out of Israel. They see the ships out of Israel to get Israeli Americans out. They- they don't feel the same about uh, their situation. Yeah. Listen, I understand the fear, the anxiety that they're having right now. I, I, I can't say that I, I blame them as many of them are sitting down there at the raffle crossing waiting for that gate to open up. Uh, I understand that what they're going through. We understand what they're going through. And that's why we're working it really, really hard. Overnight, two more hostages
1: were released by Hamas amid intense negotiations and in a deal brokered by Egypt and Qatar. Nurik Cooper, 79, and Yocheved Lifshitz, 85, are now safely in Israeli custody though their husbands still remain held by Hamas. One of the women, 85-year-old Lifshitz, described her kidnapping as hell, but also described her captors as gentle, even shaking hands with one as she left. The image has since taken social media in Israel, in Israel rather by storm.
0: Meanwhile, according to reporting in the Wall Street Journal, talks over the release of any larger group of hostages, those talks are held up. Israel is refusing to meet the group's demands for fuel to be included in humanitarian aid to the region. Israel believes the fuel will just end up in the hands of hostages. Hamas. Now, all this comes as airstrikes continue to pummel the Gaza Strip. Yesterday, the IDF confirmed it had struck a Hamas target inside a refugee camp. A Gaza Health Ministry spokesperson later claimed women and children were killed in that strike.
1: OK. <clears throat> There's a lot here. One, I want to start with uh, John Kirby's response to Katie Tour about the question of whether Palestinian-Americans are being treated differently than Israeli-Americans. When she asked why they're not able to be let out of Gaza, he referenced regional security concerns, which begs the question what are the security concerns around American Palestinians trapped in Gaza? And two, when pressed, alluded to the idea that we needed to get the gate open. Now, the Biden administration has been making a lot of noise and singing pra- its praises about the fact that uh, I believe it was Sunday night, the first humanitarian trucks came in to Gaza from Egypt. So this idea that the gate isn't open seems to be facially disproved by the fact that we are now, that Gaza is now able to receive some insufficient, but some humanitarian aid. So the question is when that gate opens to let those trucks through, what is precluding the American citizens that are trapped in Gaza from walking out of that gate?
0: Well, and it's hard to know what the answer to that is because Kirby gave a complete non-answer to that question. So we have no idea why um, the administration is not manifesting greater um, haste in taking care of that, it, it does not, frankly, seem to be a priority at all.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I then want to ask you about this this really controversial moment. Uh, there's a video of it as well, an interview that the um, the elder hostage, Lifshitz, gave where they specifically asked her why she shook her, the uh, Hamas individuals. Hand Uh, the first the the image in the video of her being released went viral because of the handshake And then they followed up and asked her in this interview. "Well, Well, why did you do it? And she went on to say it's because she was treated Well, they seem to be very prepared. They provided shampoo and all the things that I think she said, quote, women would need. And this, for obvious reasons, is being perceived as an an optics boondoggle for Israel and has been very controversial and been all over the social media, apparently, in Israel in particular. What what do you make of the optics of that?
0: Well, I think the detail that they're still holding her husband hostage is pretty important. Um, I might say nice things about my captors, too, under such a mm-hmm. s- situation, in, in hopes that um, that uh, if, if, uh, if I had a loved one who was still being held, w- wasn't going to be punished in some reciprocal nature based on what I said. It's of course possible that they treated this hostage well. It's, uh, we don't re- know the conditions that the hostages are being held in. Maybe they're being treated well, obviously we have um, knowledge of and images of the uh, the horrific conditions of the capturing of the uh, the the act of capturing we and we you know, I've seen we've seen the there's been reporting on you know Hamas's um, like operations manual which is to like to kill hostages that will be difficult and to really just want to keep um, women and children and people who are quiet and easy to deal with which maybe described um, this elder pair of ladies but uh, you know I, do, I don't think um, anyone needs to feel Like embarrassed that they said nice things about their captivity, given that it's an ongoing situation and they might not have wanted to put anyone else's lives at risk. But perhaps their situation was um, not as horrible as others' situation, or perhaps what they're saying is true. But I I don't think—I wouldn't read into it more than that at this juncture.
1: I do think the reason why it's perceived to be embarrassing is because there has been this really strong narrative um, coming out of— the Israel IDF, saying that uh, the way that Hamas treats its captives and the way that it is conducting its war is particularly brutal and barbaric, and therefore justifies some of the techniques that the IDF has been using, including collective punishment, which, as we discussed, is a, is a um, violation of the Geneva uh, Convention. So, I mean, there's, there's this way that Israel's approach toward Gaza— only is sort of justified in the public imagination if it seems like it's proportional to what um, Hamas is doing. And if there is—this is only one isolated incident, obviously, as you've pointed out, and there could be reasons why the hostages would want to be, let's say, sympathetic so that their loved ones are still captured or treated well. But they're not all saying this, right? Right. Because one woman had this particular story about how she was treated, and there is some question as to whether or not that starts to shift public opinion, not in favor of— obviously taking people hostage, but against some of the more um, aggressive approaches that the IDF has taken to Gaza, including not wanting—there has been a lot of conversation about whether or not they would be willing to trade fuel for hostages, because the IDF says it would be used for— Hamas's purposes, firing rockets, and people who are trying to administer humanitarian aid in Gaza are saying, we need this to run incubators, we need this to run the hospitals. And is is that, again, justified? Is it collective punishment to withhold fuel? These are questions that are still being um, debated. I mean, look, I I
0: certainly hope they're treating the hostages that they did not like, tied together and burned to death are—I hope the ones that Hamas did not do that to are being treated well, and maybe they are, because Hamas is trying to actually get something out of this arrangement to, you know, work Um, out—obviously, if it, it eliminates or mistreats all the hostages, that actually might give Israel more incentive to just say, well, screw it, we're going to continue trying to Destroy Hamas because we can't. We there are no hostages. Yeah, left that is so a concern as well. There's been tra- a lot treating of treating them back. badly. Does is not maybe even a good tactical strategy no, I, for I, Hamas? I, not out of the kindness I, of their yeah. hearts, but just because it doesn't. Yeah.
4: I I think you are
1: right to point to the real risk, and this is a concern that hostage families have raised in Israel, that uh, the IDF's approach here could end up killing their family members um, before there's any uh, negotiation that's uh, wrangled here. Now per The Times of Israel, an Israeli defense minister remarked to others recently that Israel permitted humanitarian aid into the Gaza Strip because the country was, in quote, no place to challenge U.S. demands. As Dr. Trita Parsi pointed out on Twitter, Biden officials say the U.S. can't make Israel agree to de-escalate or to a ceasefire, yet Israel's defense minister says that Israel is in no position to say no to the U.S. when it makes demands. It seems Biden simply doesn't want a de-escalation. What do you make of this this reasoning here?
0: Well, that's actually good good to hear from the Israeli officials that they do weigh U.S. judgment because they know how reliant they are for all the weapons we're sending, and that would you know, why Why wouldn't President Biden then use that leverage to actually um, avoid a situation where the U.S. is in a major um, uh, confrontation possibly involving ground troops with uh, several major Muslim countries and Muslim groups? That's, that is just absolutely contrary to our national security interests. And it looks like we do have an opportunity, uh, again, not to uh, from my perspective and probably from the Biden administration's perspective, not necessarily to stop or thwart um, Israel in its effort to root out Hamas, but to have a broader conflict that gets out of control where we end up in another endless war in the Middle East scenario that leaves no one better off. That, that seems absolutely like something the American people want to avoid, like something the federal government should, ought to want to avoid? Um, I mean, Biden has been around in government for all of these past failed efforts to bring peace to specific countries in the Middle East um, by having heavy U.S. involvement. Is he really up for another one of these? How could well, he be? That, I mean, but that seems increasingly likely.
1: If it is the case that Israel is listening to the United States of America, then it really throws some suspicion on this inside-outside strategy that the Biden administration has been telegraphing, where they say, well, we want to publicly support Israel, but trust us, behind the scenes, we're, we're uh, uh, urging restraint. Um, uh, uh, Yonan Tuval, who is—as a, a, a reporter, he's also with the Israeli Institute for Regional Foreign uh, Policies, he tweeted out— uh, This morning that U.S. officials confirmed to me that the key reason for IDF ground invasion delay is U.S. request to complete preps for a broader conflict, which suggests the delay is because not we're trying to de-escalate, but we're trying to get ready to get more involved, which is very concerning for those of us who, to your point, Robbie, have seen how this has gone in the past and are very skeptical that there's going to be a good outcome here.
0: Yeah, it it feels like we're being... Like we're slow walking into another major Middle East conflict that heavily involves the US. And people are just kind of, our leaders are just kind of resigned to it without thinking through what the broader implications. And we've just been down this road so many times. And there's clearly very little appetite for it among the American public. I don't see, I don't hear people, I hear a mix, certainly a mix of opinions about the situation in the Middle East and where your sympathies lie. I don't, you know, correct me, viewers, if you think I'm wrong, but I don't hear out, you know, out in the the broader in our in our country, our fellow citizens, I don't hear them clamoring for U.S. troops to be sent to Middle East because of this conflict. No, but
1: I also don't think that Biden is confused about where public opinion lies on this. I don't think he's naive. I, I think that the objectives of for all the critique that's happened over the last few years. With the deep state and Donald Trump, and he's being attacked, and the military-industrial complex, this is the moment where all of that hmm. energy, I think, which is sincerely felt but perhaps applied in areas that aren't as relevant to the public interest, need to find a, a, need to land here. It has always been in the interest of the blob to do wars. We have seen um, unusual Wales has been reporting on the number of Congress members who are personally profiting profiting. From this conflict are the only socialism that we have one of the few forms of socialism that we have in the United States of America is our military system and the US dollars that are now flowing extremely freely to weapons manufacturers. In fact our own representatives in the State Department and elsewhere are making the case that people shouldn't mind a hundred billion dollars going out in these military aid packages because ultimately it comes back to
0: Americans in the form of money well, to I, defense contractors. As you know I'm no fan of socialism. <laughs> right. Well, so I, the, the, What I'm trying to say is that but but Joe Biden is facing is up for re-election. Yeah. He's going to be facing an opponent who we're not absolutely sure who that is, but very likely to be Donald Trump, who might be saying different things about we don't I don't really know. We haven't heard a tremendous amount from him on this subject yet. Obviously, you can parse what his past statements and past policy was toward Israel, but might be saying different things about how much intervention there should be with the US. So, I'm just saying that maybe Um, Joe Biden should listen to what the American people are saying for his own narrow political interest. Right.
1: Well, Ron Klain uh, quote-tweeted a tweet by Waleed Shahid the other day, where Waleed Shahid, uh, he's for Justice Democrats, um, Muslim American, pointed out how many Muslim Americans are saying they won't vote for Biden uh, because they're so frustrated about how he's handling this crisis, including a lot of voters in Michigan, which is a key state with a large Muslim population that he needs to win. And Ron Klain... Biden's senior advisor says—I like, don't want to misquote him, but he was basically like, whatever, then they'll get Trump. And if that's the attitude the Biden administration is having to disaffected voters, it's not going to look very good for him uh, next year. All right, stick around. We have more Rising for you right after this.
0: We have even more breaking news for you on the House Speaker front. Now, Republicans of the lower chamber nominated House Majority Whip Tom Emmer for Speaker on Tuesday. That makes him the third GOP lawmaker who will attempt to garner 217 votes to secure the gavel after, obviously, Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise. And per a
1: scoop on the Hill from Punchbowl News, Democrats seem willing to help elect the establishment Republican Speaker, If he promises to do aid to
0: Ukraine and Israel. I want to read this specific statement. This is from Representative Dean Phillips Mm -hmm. on X. Um, This is a Democratic representative saying, I would sit out the speaker vote if Tom Emmer will fund our government at negotiated levels, bring Ukraine and Israel aid bills to the floor, and commit to rules changes. So... He, he's saying that he will not participate. And remember, it's just a majority of the people present for the vote. So if just a few Democrats sit out, that brings the total necessary to elect the next speaker down. So then you could theoretically get one without, however, the eight or nine, the dissenting Republican um, voters. This is, this is amazing. Uh, Brianna, I'm sure you're very thrilled with this. You're just—I can tell how excited <laughs> you are that finally— Democrats are going to defy their leadership in order to help elect the most establishment Republican candidate for the specific purpose of giving <laughs> unlimited aid and support, military, to Ukraine and Israel. You yeah. must be pleased as Th- punch.
1: This is the most establishment Democrat thing that establishment dem- establishment Democrats could do, which is to basically show their colors and show how much the blob is aligned on the issue of doing war. So these. Blue Dog Democrats are going to join up with their ideological bedfellows on the other side of the aisle, who they pretend to hate over wokeness or, um, you know, trans beer um, advocates, (laughs) spokespeople, or whatever whatever pop culture thing that everyone likes to talk about, about to pretend that there's two separate parties. But there is only one, and you're seeing it play out here, and it's worth a reminder that there is a world where progressives counter progressives, the what it was, right. it, 13 or so progressives who signed the letter for a ceasefire, made it their own kind of move and said that they would make an alliance with the eight holdouts to try to prevent this kind of maneuver from happening, or to make their own kind of agreement that could get of one of the, the freedom caucus see more anti-war people in the speaker position. But they have been spending the last year singing praises of Hakeem Jeffries, a man who calls Israel the sixth borough of New York, by the way, uh, and ignoring the fact that he has devoted much of his political life to getting um, pro-Palestinian progressives out of office. So this—this is—this is just the way
0: the world You turns. just started a sentence about Congress, they have been spending, and then <laughs> you could have just stopped there. They have well, they been, spending. been spending.
1: Well, they haven't been spending, thanks—thanks to this holdup. And when they do start spending again, the, the priorities of this government are going to be made clear. Foreign
0: countries. Foreign countries. At least, I mean, at least the parties do disagree on wokeness. They don't disagree on spending American tax dollars everywhere but America, that the foreign policy of the country is enhanced by making sure Ukraine and Israel have everything they need. So this would be remarkable if it actually got resolved this way, not because Republicans figured it out, worked out their internal struggle for the heart and soul of the party and whether they're going to have a less interventionist foreign policy and whether members are going to be able to defy leadership, hold leadership accountable for not living up to the Republican-Trump agenda, does not get resolved at all by any of that, but because Democrats defect in order to make sure Ukraine and Israel get everything they need. That would truly be—that would be the most— that would be the most devastating for you, I think, outcome. Yeah, I here. mean, it's not
1: devastating for me because it affirms everything that I've been saying about the Democratic Party. Like I mentioned uh, in a different segment, um, you know, you've got Ron Klain out here being very dismissive of the concerns of the Muslim community, including thousands and thousands of Muslim voters in Key State, Michigan, uh, mm. I even mean, if you have the White House Chief of Staff he, he tweeted, Tr- Trumpers will Trump in response to a, um, uh, uh, an articulation of how frustrated Muslims are with Biden, uh, Biden's foreign policy right now. Trumpers will Trump. He's saying that about Muslim voters who were, frankly, the target of the Muslim ban and all of these, um, you know, statements that, that made Trump so reviled among liberals when he was first running in 2016. He's so willing to be dismissive of them. If Wrong claim. If former White House chief of staff can be that dismissive of the American voter, nobody can accuse me or other leftists of being responsible for whatever befalls Mm -hmm. him politically in 2024.
0: And, you know, I don't mean to be getting on any kind of high horse here, because if this scheme were to go forward, this just also shows that Republicans are willing to work, the, the establishment GOP is willing to work with Democrats to help—to f- to thwart the Freedom Caucus, Matt Gates, Jim Jordan, Trump, MAGA agenda. They would, they would rather—it is easier for them to find common ground with the Democratic Party for the purposes of a foreign policy, a bipartisan consensus, than it is to actually t- to, to, um, to practice the values that mm-hmm. Republican voters tell the party over and over and over again they actually care about and want.
1: Now, this is not all said and done, of course. Emmer still has to win this public election. The private election is a different story. And several Republicans uh, earlier this morning did come out prematurely, preemptively against Tom Emmer, saying that they might decline to vote for him because of his vote to protect gay marriage. I think we have a clip of that.
5: You about his vote on same-sex
6: marriage? Uh, Very concerned. Could you vote against him?
0: Uh,
1: yes. Uh, would you? Are you gonna? Is there any way you
0: would vote for him? Uh, no. Well, it sounds like he was not voting for him anyway. Well, maybe not. But. but this is the
1: issue. You could only get what three more of him uh, before you're in. Assuming right. that Democrats don't sit out. But you. Can I mean, this get- is
0: referencing what the, the federal um, agreement to codify that protection in the event it got. Yeah, it was invalidated by a future yeah, Supreme Court decision. It was,
1: it was gay it was gay marriage and um Interracial marriage <clears throat> that were uh, being protected <laughs> in this legislation. Overwhelming majorities of Americans, including uh, I believe most Republicans, also support gay marriage at this point. Uh, but uh, that was Rick Allen of Georgia. He that's a that's a line of the sand for him. So it is exposing some of these really interesting fault lines yeah. that still exist. The 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 failure to do populism within the political framework is not just about war it also is ignoring the social issues that there is mass agreement about as well so
0: well i mean there's there's some there's disagreement on certainly aspects of the social issues issues question you're right that i mean interracial marriage has been settled for a long time thankfully uh, gay marriage too, which I support is something that, as you point out, a lot of Republicans actually neck do and neck, support. actually.
1: Interracial marriage support's at 71%. Gay marriage is at 70%. Among
0: the general population. Among the general
1: population. Republicans, for the first time, approve of same-sex marriage at 55%, according to Gallup. This is back in 2001, an article, an older article that I'm reading. Well, so, majority of Republicans. Oh,
0: well, it went up. It's even up. And then it started backsliding a little bit um, because of, um, I, I think, uh, Dis, uh, a dislike among many Republicans for Let's the see. gender aspect of the Let's see. I got LGBT. a June
1: 2023 um, poll here. I mean, it might be higher
0: than the 55 percent it was in. What did you say, 2001? Uh huh. I think it's gone up okay. and then down a little bit.
1: Today, majorities of all but two key subgroups: Republicans at 49 percent. Still math. And weekly churchgoers at 41% say gay marriages should be legally recognized. Republican support for gay marriage has hovered around the 50% mark since 2020, with slight majorities backing it in 21 and 2022. The latest 49% recorded for this group is statistically similar uh, to the level of support Gallup has seen in recent years. So they've been hovering around 50%. There
0: might also have been some Republicans who, for instance, think that um, at the state level it should be recognized, but the federal government doesn't have a... It's possible it should not be involved in that question. It's
1: possible is the speaker vote going a rise and fall on a vote on gay marriage and interracial marriage. <laughs> I don't think so, but I is I it guess 2023 or 1923? <laughs> okay,
0: well, we've had our fun, and uh, Republicans are having a lot of fun with all these votes. We'll see how many more they have to take. More rising right after this. House Republicans are currently holding a closed-door meeting on Capitol Hill to decide their next nomination for speaker. And per reporting on what's going on inside that room, we're already down to six representatives. Uh, Pete Sessions is out of the speaker's race after the first secret ballot vote, and apparently Whip Tom Emmer of Minnesota is the top vote-getter. Now, Emmer is challenged by remaining representatives Jack Bergman of Michigan, Byron Donalds of Florida, Kevin Hearn of Oklahoma, Mike Johnson of Louisiana, and also Representative Austin Scott from Georgia,
1: and I think this is just in a, f- a couple of minutes ago. I think Bergman was eliminated after the, set, the second round of voting. So, Freedom Caucus leader Matt Gates took to Rumble this week to deliver this message on the ongoing speaker crisis.
6: Building, it is not only verboten; it's quite literally against the law to talk about fundraising and donations. You have to do that across the street. You can't do it in the Capitol building. Astonishingly. I watched former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy make the case on Meet the Press that what's most important when evaluating a potential candidate for speaker is not just how they will lead inside the Capitol building. It is what they will do across the street for the lobbyists and special interests. Take a listen. This is not a moment in time to play around with learning on the job. We need someone who understands how to do this job. I believe Tom Emmer, our whip, he's been in the room with all of our successes from our bills to secure the border, from parents' bill of rights, from cutting two trillion dollars, getting work requirements. He knows how to do the job across the street at the same time, helping us win the majority. He sets himself head and shoulders above all those others who want to run. We need to get him elected this week and move on and bring this not just party together, but focus on what this country needs most. All right. so yeah,
0: the the, uh, the uh, I, I think the perceived to be most establishment candidate in the race currently is the one who did get the most votes, mm-hmm. uh, Tom Emmer. I'm mm-hmm. seeing a lot of dissatisfaction from. Trump conservatives on social media um, about that. So th- the thing about this process is—so this is behind closed doors, this is a secret ballot. At the end of this process, they'll have a new um, a, a new designate uh, designated Republican candidate for speaker. Mm-hmm. There is no reason to think, there's no guarantee, no reason to believe that at the end of the day, whoever this person is, whether it's Emmer or someone else, is any more likely than Jim Jordan um, to, to get— to get enough votes to actually become speaker. I don't know why the holdouts would change their mind now. We haven't heard anything that that's going to be the case.
1: Yeah, and like I mentioned, uh, I think yesterday or the day before, the real hard deadline where perhaps the holdouts might start to feel pressure is the uh, November 17th, yes. when the government runs out of money, the temporary funding bill runs out. Until then, they have no incentive to stop playing games or to stop using this as an opportunity to do what Matt Gates was doing in the clip we just watched, which is to point out some of the hypocrisies of Congress and to talk about how some of these candidates are openly advocating for themselves by saying, I'm the guy who's going to be good with lobbyists. That's exactly the kind of thing that got him booed, by the way, I think in a really great moment for Matt Gates, booed on the House floor by his colleagues when he pointed out how much corruption exists in Washington. So, yeah. I don't, I don't know what they're doing. This seems like a big time-wasting measure unless they have gotten some commitments from the holdouts a priori. Otherwise, why are you doing these secret ballots to begin with?
0: It's just fun to hold votes. They're like playing mafia <laughs> or werewolf, one-night werewolf back in, uh, back in the Republican quarters just for the fun of it. No, I, I mean, the fundamental uh, divide does not sound like it's been bridged. That uh, Again, especially if it ends up being Tom Emmer who so again? What was this all about? If that if that figure just ends up being the speaker, honestly, that would in some ways validate criticisms of Matt Gates that it's a personal feud mm. with Kevin McCarthy mm-hmm. for supporting the ethics investigation into uh, Matt Gates. That that will seem more likely if another establishment Republican figure gets to take over. It just couldn't be McCarthy mm-hmm. himself. So probably um, the the Gates faction again, needs to agitate, actually, for one of their own, for a Jim Jordan-type figure. Maybe that could be Byron, Byron Donald's instead or as well, but I don't think it could be Emmer. And and, and then if it is the Jim Jordan-type figure, not Jordan himself, but the, the someone from the Freedom Caucus or Gateswing or whatever you're going to call it, what we know is that some of the the establishment Republicans are going to utterly reject that choice. So again, there's no there's no uh, there's no reason to think this dynamic is going to change.
1: Yeah, AOC in fact weighed in on the possibility that Byron Donalds could be nominated uh, a speaker of the House. She was not um, complimentary of this particular choice. Uh, she said he's only served one term in the U.S. House of Representatives. The last thing he did in the oversight committee was attempt to submit falsified evidence to an impeachment hearing. It's, so he's, she's, he's already getting some criticism just for being too junior for it. Whether or not anybody really cares about AOC's yeah, opinion, now, this is a whole other, a whole other question. But it will definitely that's probably
0: good for his chances. <laughs> it might be. AOC hates me. <laughs> the one person AOC doesn't want to see as leader of the Republican caucus and as Speaker of the House. Well, I do wonder if it's a little bit like I'm, I'm, I'm too junior.
1: Dallas. You know, you know when yeah. somebody runs for something that you had to kind of take in yourself out of because you assumed that you weren't qualified and then they're even less qualified than you. I feel like that was a little bit what was going on with uh, some of the force-of-vote moments with these progressives in the first instance, everyone was saying, well, who could possibly step up to replace Pelosi? And now that she's seeing—you know, it could have been her—and now that she's seeing that someone like Byron Donald is throwing his hat in the ring, maybe there's some resentment. Or Hillary Clinton, when she said, oh, I'm too old to run for president again after 2016, and then saw Trump and Bernie and Biden and everybody else take another lap. I, I can understand that resentment, but that's just really not she about you right now. She
0: was too you see. old to run again. She was too unpopular well, to run again. <laughs> Or even in no. the first place. <laughs> no, no argument for me there. Mm. Well, it'll be interesting to keep following this dynamic. Uh, I predict a lot more votes, and and maybe they'll settle something by the November seventeenth um, deadline. Um, of, of course, I I think they can also just empower the interim chair and and have a deal go forward on the spending situation without actually electing a new House speaker. Yeah, I would bet. That that I wouldn't bet a lot of money, but I would bet that that's the most likely.
1: Yeah, especially if they can really constrain the powers in a limited way. I mean, I do think another inflection point here is the 105 billion dollars that Biden has requested for. Israel and Ukraine and the border wall. I think the the idea is Biden's trying to say, oh, you want your border funding? You think there's a real crisis that you want to run on at the border? You think—I saw, you know, new kind of right-wing reports, Hamas is, is coming through our southern border. Okay, if you really are concerned about those sorts of things then you would need to vote this funding package through. But this is, again, exactly what Matt Gates is frustrated by. Right, the he idea wants that you're to vote on those individual stuff. things. Exactly. Republicans want to
0: vote on a border wall and maybe not necessarily funding for Ukraine. This is exactly why we need to empower individual members to uh, for votes to be on these individual things, and then we can find out what's popular in Congress and what's yeah. not. Right now, we just have to take uh, whoever the leaders is their word for it. Exactly, exactly. We'll have more Rising right after this.
1: That was video footage of former congressman and first Palestinian member of Congress, Justin Amash, that he shared on X, formerly Twitter, of the aftermath of Israeli Defense Force's deadly strike of a Christian Greek Orthodox Church last week in Gaza. He confirmed several members of his his family were killed, writing, it, quote, collapsed from an Israeli airstrike, killing multiple members of three connected Orthodox Christian families who are my relatives. They are my dad's first cousins and their spouses, children, and in-laws. May their memories be eternal. The IDF did take responsibility for launching the strike, but it maintains it was targeting a Hamas compound, not the church.
0: amash confirmed the death of multiple family members Friday, a day after the bombing occurred, posting a picture of two relatives of his that were seeking shelter at the church. Writing, quote, The Palestinian Christian community has endured so much, our family is hurting badly. May God watch over all Christians in Gaza and all Israelis and Palestinians who are suffering, whatever their religion or creed. And then yesterday he shared another family member of his had been pulled from the rubble. His second cousin, George, just a baby. Amash wrote, quote, This beautiful baby committed no crimes, harmed no person. May his memory be eternal. Um, absolutely. Um, awful, uh, uh, perhaps making this conflict um, feel a little bit more real for uh, Americans that have a former member of Congress um, sharing that he had relatives who have been um, killed by uh, an IDF strike. Now, the Israeli forces say that they were targeting not the church specifically, a uh, Hamas uh, headquarters that was just next door. The strike hit a wall of the church that caused it to partly collapse, killing. Um, I think we don't have the exact total yet. I've heard 16, 18. There could be more um, by the time they're done I'm looking into it, obviously. Um, really, really horrible. And, you know, of course, like while Israel is obviously going to go after Hamas, you know, you start. You have to think, like, philosophically, let's say there was, you know, a murderer hiding in my apartment building, and the police just blew up the apartment building to kill the person. I mean, no one would consider that legitimate, right? No. Um, I and- mean, they wouldn't.
1: And and I don't know—I haven't seen any reporting out about verifying that there was, in fact, a Hamas target. And so you also have to be sensitive to the idea that—the idea that there might be a Hamas, tar- a Hamas target nearby has been used to justify, in the eyes of so many Palestinians, any number of attacks that— we're not even—didn't even have that basic kernel of a foundation that might, in some people's eyes, justify um, this kind of a bombing.
0: So right. it— I mean, this is also—this is a problem with drone warfare, which is done in a very distant, um, passive way, where someone is just pressing a button. Um, you know, ob- if you had—obviously, resp- there are also a lot of casualties and m- deaths of innocent bystanders that occurred during— you know, full-scale invasions involving ground troops, but if they had to actually send in troops, you would would use conventional weapons rather, you you know, you're you're more able to verify what the situation is on the ground rather than just distantly pressing a button and hitting something. Oops, we hit that too. Um, It seems very, I, I think it seems very unacceptable.
1: Yeah, and this, I think, is why public opinion is turning in the way that it has. You know, when you look at the death toll going up, well, the events of October seventh were horrible, but that was the end of the that the death the Israeli death toll is still at that October seventh number more or less, whereas you have the death toll for Palestinians, including Palestinian children, just going through the roof. I think it's about five thousand overall, almost half of those are children. You see, not just to the extent that there is a dehumanization that happens with Palestinians, where they're less likely to be seen as equal uh, or be, they're more likely to be described in these terms like barbaric, et cetera, you've seen from so many um, uh, IDF representatives and the like. When you see a former Congress member tweeting a picture of a baby covered in ash, we censored it here, but you know he tweeted out the uncensored version, being lifted from rubble, it feels very connected to an American experience. A little, how much more American does it get than serving in Congress? So, you know, I, I asked the question. I saw a number of other Congress members reaching out and expressing their sympathies, understandably so. But I couldn't help but notice that. At least some of those representatives—I noticed Jamie Raskin, in particular, were not one of the 13 representatives that were signatories uh, on the uh, progressive bill for immediate de-escalation and ceasefire that went out last week. Um, They have only gotten 13—this is a little bit older. Maybe there's been more joining since. But when it was reported on initially, only thirteen representatives had signed on to it, and so a part of me thinks that, as tragic as it is, it really underscores how little public opinion has to do with the decisions that are being made in Congress. Hmm. I mean,
0: you, you said uh, a minute ago that well, the, the you know the damage by the the deaths attributable to Hamas's attack on October seventh have have ended—I mean, you know, in in Israel's view, unless they deal with Hamas and get rid of Hamas, there will be more attacks and more terrorism in the future, which is not obviously to condone any specific action taken here. I think this is impossible to defend and tragic. And I wish um, that, as they go about their attack on Hamas, they would try much harder to limit civilian casualties or, in fact, To have a ceasefire and have some other way of getting the hostages back. I I think the reality though is that Israel is going is 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 in the view that Hamas based because of what they did on October 7th has to be just systematically destroyed as an organization.
1: The the problem is that I mean we're watching how they do that. Right, and it means killing a bunch of innocent people. Right. So is the international community gonna say the war crimes are okay if Israel does it, that murdering civilians is okay if Israel does it? If that's the standard, that's the standard. But as we're seeing from the hundreds of thousands of people that were out protesting over the weekend, and the public opinion polls, which show that overwhelming majorities of Americans want there to be a ceasefire, I think it was sixty-six percent want there to be a ceasefire. It's 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 a political non-starter, and I think raising some real interesting moral questions about our public support, our financial support as a country for what the state of Israel is doing. And I, I should also say. I understand that Israel's view—the Israeli government, I should say, their view is that this is just justified until Hamas is gone. The view of the people of Palestine is that it's not going to stop until they're no longer under occupation and are no longer forced to live in apartheid conditions. So, with the extent that America is intervening, it has to engage in, the, in that moral question, not just what, re, what does retribution look like? for Israel but also what does equality look like for pal- Palestine the, the the phrase no justice no peace is supposed to speak to the idea that you can't just call for peace whilst one part of the population is still very much uh, living under subjugation so.
0: well right I mean I, I, but I, I don't think from Israel's point of view I mean it should not be viewed as retribution because you're right then it's just what an eye for an eye it's just but it's been like killing people 10 eyes for an it eye. should be security which is that they can, no no state would tolerate a terrorist group on its borders that periodically comes in and indiscriminately kills civilians
1: right but they the terrorist group as we've discussed very naturally that was put in pow- power by groups. the by the prime minister of Israel for the purpose of creating a justification for attacking Palestinians in exactly this way at the same time this has been ongoing on the Gaza strip there have been a spike, escalating violence in um, uh, in the West Bank, where there is not Hamas, and the violence cannot be justified on those terms. Uh, a group of three masked settlers; those are Israelis who, of course, have been expanding these settlements in this region. That it was supposed to be ostensibly Palestinian, but there's been this. What has been described as a, co- a colonial project of increasingly encouraging Israelis to go and to move to this land, to settle this land, and then to get engaged in skirmishes that justify growing and growing how much land Israel can claim and shrinking what Palestinians can claim. There have been these escalations, um, The New York Times reported on uh, just a day or two ago, where three mass settlers killed, Israel- uh, killed Palestinians and then attacked the funeral procession for those Palestinians the next day and killed more people. I mean, this is the kind of thing that's happening. So I do think that we should really caution against the idea that once enough bombs have been dropped on Gaza, the conflict, the violence is going to be over, because Palestinians have been experiencing an ongoing campaign of violence for the last many, many, many decades. And and, and that is what is fostering, feeding a group, like providing kind of some kind of moral justification for people who might be inclined to join and support Hamas.
0: Well, I, I agree that peace feels very elusive in this part of the world. And um, that makes me even, again, even less inclined to have our country and our government Um, you know, naively thinking it's going to work out this time if we make the conflict broader and and more involved in it. But we'll see if that sentiment ever uh, reaches President Biden's ears. More rising right after this. Elon Musk, GOP presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy, and entrepreneur David Sachs were among several participants of a virtual rendezvous discussing the need for world leaders to prioritize peace, diplomacy, and cooperation to avoid another global war. Here's a snippet of the hour-and-a-half conversation, starting with Elon Musk.
5: How do we avoid World War III? Um, the, there's, it Because if you look at the various conflicts currently and likely potential conflicts these things are obviously bad there's people that uh, a lot of people die and suffer but they're you know they're they're not civilizational risks uh, but world war iii is a civilizational risk uh that that uh, we may not recover from so we want to i think prioritize avoiding world war iii
1: Ramaswamy also joined the conversation in which he warned the U.S. is ill-equipped to handle another world war. Let's listen.
6: I think it's important for people to understand, especially when the U.S. homeland is as vulnerable as we have been in modern memory, not just from a border perspective, but from missile defense or cyber defense or defenses against super electromagnetic pulse attacks. I think this is where I am attempting (laughs) unsuccessfully so far, but attempting to awaken a GOP from what appears to be a deep slumber.
1: So, can another world catastrophe be avoided? Retired Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis took part in that discussion, too, and he's here with us today to discuss this question further. Welcome, Colonel Davis. Hey,
2: thanks for having me back.
1: All right. So I've been accused of being hyperbolic whenever I've raised in other contexts outside of this show the question of the imminence of a potential global conflict. Uh, can you walk us through the likelihood of that, and what kind of tipping points could lead to that outcome?
2: Well, I'll tell you, nothing is ordained. Everything is still possible, and that means peace is possible, or at least the avoidance of a of an expansive war. But but look, Elon Musk and uh, Vivek Ramaswamy are both right. I mean, the, the risk is high. And I think that by people downplaying this, we just make the potential even that much higher. Everything, I think, is going to come down to really what happens once Israel launches its incursion into the Gaza Strip. I think it's foreordained at this point. I, I, I personally would, would argue that they would benefit from delaying that uh, for a number of reasons. But I, I think that the pressure is too great on the Israeli government. I think they're probably going to move. It depends on then what happens after that. You have Hamas in the northern part that's, that's threatened to open a northern front against Israel so that they'll have a two-front war, whether that would happen immediately or whether they would delay and let Israel get, uh, you know, deeply engaged before doing that. Who knows? But but then the big question is what happens next? Now, you have the folks like Lindsey Graham who's saying, yeah, we should just basically uh, assume that is the same thing as Uh, uh, Iran getting involved and so we should go after Hezbollah and then if Iran does anything to us as a result of that or if Iran does anything to our troops in the region then we should go after them we should destroy their oil infrastructure etc the problem with this I mean there's a bunch of problems is that that underestimates what the reaction would be we still think that this is like the 1990s or we think that they're like say Syria uh when uh President Trump and, and Biden both launched missile attacks into the into their country, and Syria is so weak they couldn't do anything in response, and they didn't. But this situation is very very different than that because there are so many additional actors. The and, and you're talking about we have vulnerability with our troops in Iraq, with our troops in in Syria, which have already been attacked even in today, earlier today. So far, God, they thank God none of them have been killed. But you know, the minute that that changes. And one of our troops actually dies because of this now that the the you know that the screams from that uh, you know that pro-war lobby in the united states and those are big time on the hawk side will be screaming for an attack on iran saying that's who did it the oblivious to the fact that that could draw us into a war and that's the big danger is that once those things start happening then war takes on a momentum of its own and no one can control what happens next
0: you know Tucker Carlson said recently that if we had another world war, there's no guarantee the U.S. would win. In fact, I think he said the U.S. would lose. Um, Vivek, in, in his remarks there, mentioned the weakness of the U.S.'s position, and then and, you know Nikki Haley, who's on the totally opposite side foreign policy from Vivek and Tucker, you know was talking about the need to give the Defense Department, well, to rename it the Department of Offense, and then give it whatever it needs to conduct a lot of intervention. You know, in your opinion, what is the the state? Of um, the U.S.'s ability to to defend itself currently versus where we might have been historically in, in terms of you know how how untouched and unrivaled we were.
2: You know, when when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1992, and the United States had just just cleaned the clock of Iraq in Desert Storm, uh, China was still basically a third world country. They had a peasant army. You know, they they were not a threat to anyone. Uh, anywhere, I mean, they they could barely defend their own borders and their internal situation. And that moment, we were absolutely the preeminent power on the globe. Nobody could do anything to us. Problem is, too many people today still have that mentality. We still think that's true, and the world has radically changed since that time and now just in relative terms we're no longer this you know unrivaled unchallenged power there are challenges there are rivals that are on there there's peers there's near peers and we can't just do what we want anymore and now especially in the Middle East you're seeing that there is so much anger that's building up and so many people are doing things that don't make any sense that I mean like Hamas attacking Israel. I mean, the balance of power is just off the charts between the two. And if it stays just in Gaza, Hamas has no chance of winning. But yet they attacked anyway. And so the risk is that other people say, even though this doesn't make sense, the United States is strong, we may attack anyway. Now, Robbie, I'll tell you, as we've talked about on your show plenty of times over the last year or so, all of this uh, military equipment we keep sending to Ukraine, all of these shells we keep sending, these rockets, these missiles, air defense systems, all these things we keep giving to Ukraine has de- depreciated our capacity to wage war. So our ability to defend our interests is now substantially weaker than it was in February 2022. Now that you're talking, we've already diverted more shells into Israel. So our stocks are even further depleted, and it's going to take years to recover from that. So no, we are not as strong as we were even 20 months ago. And the longer we keep going, this the longer we keep giving our tanks, our Bradleys, our self-propelled howitzers, millions of rounds of artillery, we're going to get even weaker. If this does spark into a war, Vicki Haley is wrong. We don't have the capacity to beat everybody. And I hope Tucker's wrong that we might lose, but it's not for sure either way.
1: So if you were in Joe Biden's shoes, what would you be advising with respect to next steps, um, encouraging or discouraging uh, ground troops and the like? What what should the anti-war community be agitating for as they are trying to push the Biden administration in a pro-peace direction?
2: Yeah. Look, you if you're a pro-war out advocate, if you're an American that desires our country to be secure, you should be the one leading this charge and saying, hey, we don't have the capacity and the power that we once had. And, and if things go sideways pretty bad, we could be in real trouble. What we should say is, hey, we need to put the brakes on what we've been doing in Ukraine. That's going to have to slow down dramatically, if not stop. And, and certainly at some point it needs to. In Israel, we need to say, hey, we can help you with stuff here. We can give you some equipment and some, some ammunition and other things that you might need but you are gonna have to provide your own security. That's the reason that we've been giving them 3.8 billion annually and and for for decades of money so that they have a military that's strong enough to defend themselves, and they do. We succeeded with that. They can handle Hamas, and if Hezbollah attacks from the North, they can handle that too. Look, they've already done it. The 1967 war, the 1973 war, we didn't help them fight then, and and they handled it, so it's a multi-front war. They're in a similar situation now They could potentially be, and they can handle it. So I would recommend that President Biden not use military force, not fight Hezbollah, so that we don't get sucked into a war. And I would advise to get those troops that we have on the ground in Iraq and in Syria out. As I've been arguing for years, I think on your show previously, all they do is sit there in the middle of the desert and act as a target of opportunity for Hmm. our enemies. But they do nothing for our national security. So we need to get that vulnerability out because if something happens to those troops they've been attacked several times already but so far no casualties but if it does like i just said there'll be a lot of demand on the white house to respond which could spark a war so let's get our vulnerabilities out of the way let's don't get into a war and let's start actually rebuilding our military strength before we go looking for dragons to slay elsewhere
0: yeah. Daniel Davis, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it.
1: And it looks like you have a new setup. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what's going on with your new show?
0: I do,
2: yeah. We, we have a new show. It's called Deep Dive. Uh, Daniel Davis Deep Dive. And it's on YouTube. And uh, basically what we're doing is saying, hey, you know, you watch a newscast, you know, MSNBC, Fox, CNN. You get a three four minute hit but you don't get a chance to really know what's going on beneath the surface or get a better understanding so we have a show here that takes the issues that are most uh, concerning to americans and we go into a deeper understanding a dive Mm -hmm. on it so that you have more knowledge about what's going on and we can tell you why things are more important and importantly also when some people make certain claims that aren't challenged on the air we will challenge them so you'll know what the truth is
1: that sounds terrific thanks again for your time today
2: hey thanks for having me i appreciate it
1: Lots of news out of Trump lands. Jenna Ellis, a former lawyer for President Donald Trump's 2020 campaign, pleaded guilty today to illegally conspiring to overturn Trump's 2020 election loss in Georgia, according to a court document. This makes Ellis the third attorney associated with the former president and the fourth co defendant to accept a plea deal in the case, according to the Washington Post. Meanwhile, Michael Cohen is coming to the witness stand. The ex-Trump ally is expected to be face-to-face with his former boss, former President Donald Trump, in a New York courtroom today as Mr. Cohen delivers testimony in the ongoing civil fraud case against Trump. Cohen wrote on threads, It appears that I will be reunited with my old client, real Donald Trump, when I testify this Tuesday, October 24th, at the New York State AG civil fraud trial. See you there. Hashtag Team Cohen.
0: Now, according to The Hill, Cohen first turned on Trump amid investigations into a hush money deal made before the 2016 election, paying over $200,000 to porn star Stormy Daniels and ex-Playboy model Karen McDougal on Trump's behalf to cover up allegations of an affair elsewhere on the Trump front. The former president recently answered to some questions about his connections with Sidney Powell.
4: Mr. President,
0: are you concerned
3: that you won't be covered by a pretty client or a list? No, not at all, uh, we did nothing wrong, we did nothing
2: this is all Biden indictments and impeachments and this is all about Biden, you can't
3: do anything right, the only thing they know how to do is cheat on elections and election fraud, uh, this is all Biden stuff, all of these indictments that you see, I was never
6: indicted, practically never heard the word, it wasn't a word that registered.
0: Trump now has five percentage points on President Joe Biden among the voters in a new Harvard-Harris poll. So none of this news um, hurting him thus far Mm -hmm. in polls showing him even or even ahead of Joe Biden in um, in certain races. Uh, now, the polls have nothing to do with his legal situation. Uh, so, Jenna Ellis is another you know former Trump person, charged as part of this Rod indictment Diamond in Georgia. Um, she had to read um, a statement as part of her deal, where she says, I failed to do my due diligence. I believe in and I value election integrity. If I knew what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these challenges. I look back on this whole experience with deep remorse like Sidney Powell and like Cheeseborough and like all of the rest of them that have yet to make deals, this is going to be incredibly bad for Donald Trump's defense, that he's going to have so many people, many people who worked with him, pointing to him as the head of a criminal conspiracy to cheat in the 2020 election. Um, he will say, well, what they're saying is false, and then there will be so many of them to say that, no, he's wrong. And this is just this is like the bad situation Trump is in, is that he's gonna be drowned out by all of these people pointing to him as as the person who organized and ran this illegal conspiracy. And I say it on the show almost daily now, that's something that Republican primary voters perhaps ought to grapple with. They don't you don't have to like it. You don't have to think what they're doing is fair. You can agree with absolutely everything Trump says about the election and about how what the deep state and about how they're treating him now but you have to factor in that this is happening. The criminal justice system is not always fair. It doesn't always um, turn out like wonderfully for the guy you like the best. Um, prosecutors have all sorts of tools of the trade to get to score to get convictions, to get plea deals and convictions. They have very high rates success rates at doing so. Most people take plea deals because it's so dicey to go before the actual, uh, the actual jury. So, that's the situation Donald Trump's in, and we'll have to see where it goes from here.
1: Yeah, all that is true, and it's also true that Donald Trump has behaved toward people who work for him without really a shred of loyalty. No. And it seems like that's coming back to haunt him. Yeah. I can't think of a person who has been in his employ that he hasn't degraded at some point following his campaign. And there's no, it doesn't seem to be the case that you can earn loyalty from him by basically going along with everything if you make the slightest criticism it kind of feels like if you said I didn't like your suit today boss but (laughs) no matter what commitments you've made to him up to that point he would be quick to drag you on truth social and I feel like look you're right about um, prosecutors having tools at their and disposal. And even the most
0: loyal foot soldiers flip given these incentives, sure. and, but you're right that but these people also don't have particular Probably don't loyalty. have a lot of incentives. And if they did, it wouldn't matter, but they really don't.
1: Right. Uh, and so there was a little bit of a question there about whether he's concerned about attorney-client pr- privilege. Look, th- there's a crime fraud exception. You're, it's the, the statements that you make in furtherance of a crime are not privileged. So it just doesn't look like very good news for him. The question is what this means in the broader electoral context, because he is up five points over Joe Biden, at least in some of these national polls. Is this going to be a historical, a historically low turnout election? Because of all the people that are so frustrated with Biden, especially now over the handling of Israel-Palestine, and people who might be turned off by their presidential candidate potentially being in jail or not being able to run at all, uh, if I were one of the Republican candidates, I would be patiently waiting in the waiting in the w- wings because who honestly know what's, knows what's going to happen? Right. Five months from now.
0: Right. And I I should say that in a lot of polling, we've seen um, the other potential Republican candidates also poll uh, pretty well against Joe Biden, uh, many of them in similar polling situations. I think Nikki Haley is probably the most ahead of Joe Biden right now. And again, you don't, Nikki Haley is not particularly my flavor of Republican, uh, especially on foreign policy. But I I think one has to recognize that right now, according to the poll numbers, I think she would be even more likely to than Donald Trump to beat um, Joe Biden in a matchup. So it's, it'll be interesting to see if Republican voters, who, who are right now just you know expressing their views through polls. We haven't actually voted in Iowa, New Hampshire, and anywhere else. It'll be interesting to see if there comes a day where the people who actually get to decide this say, you know what? This seems especially risky, this guy, given everything that's going yeah. on. But they've shown no uh, no likelihood of doing so yet. Well, Trump
1: also had a special message to share to a crowd of New Hampshire voters this week.
6: You know how you spell us, right? You spell us, U-S.
3: I just picked that up. Has anyone ever thought of that? I, mean, I just picked that up. A couple of days, I'm reading, and it said us. And I said, you know? If you think about it, us equals U.S., isn't that Now, if we say
2: something genius, they'll never say it. Now, I don't want to
1: burst his bubble, Robbie, but I do remember working on a little campaign called Bernie 2020, the campaign slogan of which was, not me, us, for exactly that reason. (laughs) So he may not be the first, but hey, maybe he can deliver it to better
0: effect uh, than Bernie Sanders could. Can't spell Trump (laughs) without true. (laughs) And That's M and P. Not, okay. So, you <laughs> no. know, facts, more <laughs> rising right after this.
1: know you were all waiting on bated breath for this take on Israel-Palestine. Former President Barack Obama has finally weighed in. Obama shared some of his thoughts on what's going on in the Middle East online this weekend. He said in his statement, quote, Israel has a right to defend its citizens against such wanton violence. But even as we support Israel, we should also be clear that how Israel prosecutes this fight against Hamas matters. It matters that Israel's military strategy abides by international law, including those laws that seek to avoid, to every extent possible, the death or suffering of civilian populations.
0: The statement continued it means recognizing that Israel has every right to exist that the Jewish people have claimed to a secure homeland where they have ancient historical roots Palestinians have also lived in disputed territories for generations that many of them were not only displaced when Israel was formed but continue to be forcibly displaced by a settler movement that too often has received support from the Israeli government uh, tacitly I would add from the US government yes, given that we, we fund it and which absolutely. is the area of, uh, of Of concern for a former head of state should be, again, what does the U.S. have to do with the situation? I mean, I don't particularly object to most of what he said there. Uh, Again, I I think it is fairly straightforward that Israel can and would and should do something um, to respond to the Hamas terrorist attack, but that limiting limiting or hopefully to none but limiting civilian casualties and abiding by international humanitarian standards which Israel goals that Israel is frankly fall, obviously falling short of and uh, and I I've, I've been glad to see even uh, some conservatives in in the wake of the terrible deaths of former Republican representative Justin Mosh's family members in uh, Palestine at the church I was seeing Charlie Kirk pointing out, for instance, head of Turning Point, well-known uh, conservative commentator saying that he was not satisfied at all so far with Israel's explanation for how this supposedly incidental strike on the church, that they were actually targeting Hamas grounds near the church, and it, a part of it collapsed a wall of the church leading to these 16 or 18 or 20 deaths so far that we know of. Um, it, it, it's not enough for the IDF to just say, oh, "Oops, we're looking into it." Um, this was a place where Palestinian Christians were um, were, were hiding out. Obviously, I, I don't want to, you know, manifest the view that one group of civilians is any more or less deserving of sympathy than any other. But um, I, I was glad to see a little uh, some concern there.
1: Yeah, I mean. What we already know is that in the first week, Israel uh, is Israeli strikes killed, what was it, 30 kids who went to UN schools? So again, it, it's really terrible to have to frame it this way. But even to the extent that you buy into the kind of propaganda that Palestinians are barbarians and they don't deserve X, Y, and Z, now we're talking about all these foreign aid workers, including a bunch of the adults, as well, that were killed—I believe the number was 11—mental uh, mental health practitioners— uh, uh, I don't think
0: anyone—I'm I'm sure someone's saying—it's not that Palestinians are barbarian, that the terrorist group is barbaric and their actions are barbaric.
1: I interviewed a, a former IDF soldier whose grandfather signed the Israeli Declaration of Independence about how he grew up in Israel. On my show last week, what kind of narratives that he was taught—he was not, he said he didn't even hear, hear the word Palestine or Palestinian until he was a, a, an older teenager, um, that they referred to them exclusively as Arabs, and that there is an effort that he experienced—this is his personal story, so this is only from his perspective—to dehumanize the population as a whole. We heard any number of statements coming out of Israeli uh, public figures, um, government figures, after the uh, seven um, October 7th attack, saying things like Palestinians are human animals. The statement there was not Hamas are human animals. It was—well, let, let me not characterize it. It said, we are fighting human animals, so the bombardment is justified. I think that was more the character of the statement. We are fighting human animals. And I think, unfortunately, that line gets blurred too often. And I don't think anybody is human anim- animals. I don't think that you should ever characterize one's enemies in that way, because it does allow you to justify excesses that extend well beyond even the population that you're supposed to be targeting. If you really think you're dealing with some monstrous, barbarian human animals, then maybe you do think it's legitimate to take out uh, uh, ch- church churchgoers as a uh, collateral damage or the 2,000 kids that have already been killed as collateral damage. I do think there's a relationship
0: well, there. Well, I mean, maybe we're splitting hairs. I-, I don't think collateral damage, especially excessive collateral damage, is justified irrespective of the depravity and the barbarity of the people you're fighting. Um, I, I, I do think—I mean, the acts were, again, barbaric. How many times we've talked about the blown-apart and mutilated and set-on-fire um, conditions of the remains that forensics experts have begun to pore over what happened on October 7th. I was reading some reports on that, and it's just—it's it's utterly horrific. It, Boggles—it's—it's um, it's beyond anything you would want to comprehend. But to your point, that does not—that should not give anyone or have anyone feel licensed to respond in a way that harms or kills some other group that is not responsible for the. Under- you, you have a right to retaliate to defend yourself and retaliate against people who are cause- who have caused violence to you. That is Hamas. That is not the the innocent people of Palestine.
1: And I think a lot of people would describe the IDF's actions against the innocent people of Palestine as barbaric, and they would also describe the collective punishment against the people of Gaza, specifically turning off power that is used to keep incubators going and cutting off medical supplies that are keeping kids with cancer on their treatment course and cutting off power and Internet service so that people can't charge their phones and show the world the atrocities that they're experiencing, and very notably atrocities that they have been experiencing for decades long before the events of October 7. And it is notable, I think, to many, many of us that the word barbarism is not used to describe those actions or even imagery of Justin Amash's second cousin George, a baby, being lifted from the rubble of an IDF attack. But this issue of collective punishment, I think, is really front and center, because what Barack Obama is saying here— is a kind of a contradiction. He's saying, well, Israel has a right to defend itself, but that statement is a big placeholder with no specifics about what that means.
0: Well, I mean, he he said Israel has the right to to defend its citizens.
1: Okay. And the second part of that is, of course, it has to follow international law. Now, of course, it is not following international law, which is something that uh, Mark Lamont Hill really interestingly actually was able to get a former Israeli deputy foreign minister on on the tightropes about just last week when he did um, an interview. We have a clip of that we're going to show here. Did did Mark Lamont Hill basically get this guy to admit that what Israel is doing is collective punishment and a violation of the rules that Barack Obama is kind of saying on the abstract should be followed, but quite evidently, I think, are not? Let's take a look.
5: Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Guterres, said that he was deeply distressed by Israel's, Israel's announcement of a siege on the Gaza Strip. He said that the humanitarian situation quote, will only deteriorate exponentially and that crucial life-saving supplies, including fuel, food, and water, must be allowed into Gaza. So the UN is saying you must do this. You are saying you're not going to do this. Um, How do? No, we're not not saying that. He's saying 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 doing it immediately. What I'm saying is what what you're doing. No, no. He's saying doing it it immediately. I, I got you. I'll tell you exactly what we're saying. I'm saying we will do everything for the Gazan people. Once and now, we demand immediate surrender, unconditional surrender of Hamas. If Hamas people come out with their hands up and clear their weapons, believe me, everything will be restored to Gaza. It is Hamas in Hamas' hands. That, okay, if now I care- Thank you.
1: So this is teeing up the issue of collective punishment. As a reminder, collective punishment is defined as a war crime that is prohibited by the Geneva conventions, and it is when you use uh, threat to an entire population, for example, denying them water, food access, medical supplies, et cetera, to punish a minority or a handful of people or a group within that larger population. In this case, obviously, we're talking about the 2.3 million people that live in Gaza. We have the conclusion of this back and forth up for you now.
5: Thank you for clarifying that, sir. I, I, think, I, think, I think we're actually on the same page here. You're saying that once Hamas leaves, you'll, you'll grant... The, the, the guys and people, food, shelter, fuel, electricity, hospitals, schooling. And, in, and if they don't, and, and if Hamas doesn't leave, then they'll continue to starve and die in hospitals. You are defining for the international community right now, collective punishment. You're saying until, until Hamas acts differently, the two million people in Gaza are gonna be treated this way. And once Hamas acts differently, these two million people in Gaza will be treated better. That is exactly what collective punishment is. You're holding them accountable for the actions of others. That is the definition, the textbook definition of, of, of collective punishment, sir. Now you may you you may accept that that's what you want to do, but this is absolutely a contravention of international law.
1: So that, that went super viral because it did seem really plain on its face, and I think that happened within the first uh, week or so. What you you seem to be I guess skeptical? I don't
0: necessarily agree that that constitutes collective punishment. Um, I, um, saying we're go- like taking action to affirmatively attack the innocent people because they haven't done something about Hamas would be collective punishment. But like, are we? I mean, giving just giving resources. Like, are, is the U.S. collectively punishing Ukraine if it decides to hold or the Ukrainian people if it would finally decide, as I think that it should, to not give them any more military resources? When, I mean, the aid when, is is it's not, other it's not people's aid. stuff.
1: Israel is able to turn off the power of Gaza because Gaza is an open-air prison that is under occupation by Israel, which is also a violation of international law. So it's more as the analogy would be, am I allowed if I am the owner of a prison? I about supplies
0: entering Gaza, fuel, food, all water, all those kinds of things. It's able to cut off its energy
1: and its water supply because it occupies Gaza. and has complete control. It is not a sovereign nation that is allowed to have self-determination. That is what the Palestinian people are fighting for when they say they want liberation in the first instance. So they are only in this position because they're already being oppressed by Israel. And now it's it's more akin to if you owned a prison and to um, quash uh, there was a hostage situation where one prisoner had taken another prisoner hostage and you say I'm going to cut off all water to the prison. I'm going to cut off all power to the prison. I'm going to let whatever hospital—people are being hospitalized and treated in the prison die, except it's not even that situation, because you could at least argue that people in prison did something to be put there. I believe in the rights for prisoners and that they should be treated humanely via the, you know, eighth, uh, whatever the Eighth Amendment um, pr- requires. But the people in Gaza did not do anything wrong. Some Hamas people did something in violation of international law and attacking on October 7th and killing all of those civilians, but the people of Gaza are now being squeezed and tonight, I mean, these are real world implications. There are hospitals. I saw uh, that, um, recently just saw this morning that a, a child around eight years old who had been receiving chemo treatment at a hospital who was very concerned about not being able to finish his cancer treatment because of the lack of supplies that, again, was dubious even before the events of October 7, has been killed in a bombing. This is the scenario that people in Gaza are living under. Through no fault of their own, a pre-existing occupation. This is, this is, I think, why Israel is really struggling in the public perception, because they are. It's being framed right now by Israel as that they were are the, kind of the David and the David and the Goliath scenario, when by every metric in terms of their dominion over Gaza, their national power. Their ability to strike and do whatever they want to the citizens of Gaza, it's a very unequal playing field. And even if you allow, as Barack Obama seems to be allowing, that there's some kind of eye for eye that's allowed because of October 7, the proportionality is now so at askew with the 1,400 killed on October 7th, Israelis, and now the 5,000 Palestinians killed, that most people of conscience are no longer— willing to let this go on indefinitely. Well,
0: that's if you view it as an as an eye for an eye situation, which I think is wrong to view it that way that uh, you know, when, when enough Palestinians have died to cancel out and then some the Israeli deaths will have justice. I don't think that is a tenable position or a moral philosophy. it's the the question is about what actions can and should Israel take to eliminate the terrorist organization that and, attacked
1: And is it? there any articulation of how it is that bombing civilians— the, the Israelis will argue that Hamas is underground in tunnels. If Hamas is underground in tunnels, who are you bombing? What are you striking when you are hitting a church, or hitting humanitarian aid workers, well, I mean, they, they, or they bombing a refugee camp? They say camp? they did
0: not target the church on purpose okay, and hit they, it incidentally. They didn't
1: mean to, but oops. They hit a church and they killed a bunch of uh, former congressperson's relatives and a bunch of other innocents.
0: Well, yeah, but you just said that they targeted the church. I did not use the word targeted. I said they hit a church.
1: I said they hit. I did not say the word targeted.
0: Okay, they're... they're Trying to, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to have this conversation anymore because I'm not defending that action. They should not have taken that action. So So that's
1: where people are, and I think part of that is part of why people were frustrated with Barack Obama's uh, statement. And a part of it is that he, he also greenlit like a 38 million dollar, billion dollar over 10 years package for Israel, and is now acting like he wasn't aware of the money being used to do exactly the kind of settlement operations that he. Criticizes in his statement, but of course, it's not just oh gosh I'm some guy you were the president of the United States of America for eight years and you have a hand in all of Israel
0: this. Has gotten um, since its founding more funding from the u.s. Than any other country on earth.
1: Yeah,
0: and that continues uh, Joe Biden would uh, have another what 105, $105 billion dollar aid back. pack yeah. s- split up it's among up. multiple causes all some all Israel, for Ukraine yeah. some for other I think issues. there's 14
1: million specifically for Israel. billion Bill- billion. Sorry <laughs> specifically for Israel. More rising right after this
0: 2024 GOP candidate Vivek Ramaswamy opposes combining aid for Ukraine and Israel. Here's what he told Fox News' Jesse Waters over the weekend. Let's watch.
6: Don't be duped by Bidenomics on the economic argument, but don't be duped by this military homeland investment argument either. Get real. What are we giving up in return for bundling these? And I think it's a mistake to bundle the Israel discussion with the Ukraine discussion. It is a gambit to avoid debate on the merits on either one. So, Jesse, my foreign policy is really simple. Avoid World War Three, declare independence from China. That's the real long run threat we face and then secure this homeland. And ironically, we're hearing none of how we're accomplishing that from this president or a bipartisan foreign policy establishment. No, we're not. We're just hearing. trust
0: us. I've been in this business a long yeah. time. Per The Hill's reporting, Ramaswamy said in a statement that U.S. assistance to Israel should be contingent with the strategy in Gaza, and that simply saying destroy Hamas is not a, quote, viable, coherent strategy.
1: Meanwhile, speaking at a conference hosted by the Christians United for Israel, GOP candidate Ron DeSantis says his support for the U.S. allies stems from his faith in God. Let's watch.
4: Man, you're a stalwart for Israel and a strong U.S.-Israel relationship. Why? Why, why Israel? Well, it's something that's personal to my wife, Casey, and to me. It comes from our faith in God. Uh, it comes from the visits, and I've done a number of visits to Israel over the years, where you can walk with a Bible in your hand, read the Bible, and stand right where people like David and Jesus stood thousands and thousands of years ago.
1: Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley weighed in on increased demonstrations at college campuses around the country, standing in solidarity with Palestine, writing on X Saturday, quote... No more federal money for colleges and universities that allow anti-Semitism to flourish on campus, unquote.
0: Journalist Glenn Greenwald responded to Haley's suggestion, posing a hypothetical question on X, quote, Should the U.S. government monitor which campus speech is allowed in order to punish expressions of all forms of bigotry, or just that particular one, like allowing the state to define disinformation? This puts massive power in the hands of the state to decree what speech is allowed, unquote. Um, lots to tackle here. Uh, I, I agree with Glenn there that it's totally hypocritical to you know, want to retaliate against students for expressing speech you don't like. And this, you, you know, I mean we've talked about this before. It, it, it goes exactly into the cancel culture thing. And, and why, and again, why is it just now that students have, have expressed a political view that you don't agree with that I frankly don't agree with either, depending on what exactly is being said? Now is the time not to fund them? I mean, some conservatives have been questioning why we've been funding higher education, like, forever, for a lot of reasons. And now it only gets raised by someone like Haley because, um, because you know, she wants, um, she wants to robustly support whatever Israel wants to do, and, and her foreign policy really does stand in contrast um, to Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, who uh, who I think has correctly said that um, going a little bit to when we were talking about Mac Gates and you know wanting to consider issues separately, um, there is no reason to lump um, all both this funding together, um, and uh, and and also there's a lot of reason to question whether funding either of those things are necessary or in the best interest of. American defense, or, or is what um, what the people want on on Ukraine? Wait, well, you- wait a minute. I, I'd like to talk about this
1: uh, for a second because I think it's a big deal. I think it's a really big deal that a substantial percentage of the free speech cohort that spent so much time talking about wokeness and overreach on college campuses, and how they weren't allowing freedom of expression and that good ideas should rise to the top and people should have the integrity to debate people that come to ca- campus, etc during those debates the the tee-off was between students who would say protest or turn their backs on a speaker or things like that, and the speaker that would come. And through all of that, I I have always defended allowing the speaker to come and also the right of the students to protest in whatever they they want and just have the competing ideas compete. But now what we're seeing is a real ratcheting-up effect of full-blown authoritarianism. There are, there are Supreme Court cases that go to the question of how much the government can apply its ideological whims on the states via withholding federal dollars. And now you have a prospective presidential candidate saying, purely in ideological terms, that public education should be defunded because she doesn't like, her personal opinion is not to advocate for the freedoms, rights and interests of Palestinians, and then to go one further and to characterize that advocacy as anti-Semitism. So, the same people that said talking about racism in class, talking about the existence of any kind of bigotry or um, uh, disparities that exist among other races and groups of people, that's woke and we shouldn't talk about that in college. You went so far as to have Ron DeSantis basically establish new college in Florida as a a ideological cauldron of his own. And now, on the flip side of it, you have Nikki Haley saying something like this. I think the, all, that kind of whole anti-woke corner of the Internet, whether it's uh, the David Rubens of the world or the Megyn Kellys of the world, who are all really on board with this project, have a huge credibility problem. And the few people like Glenn Greenwald, I've seen Kim Iverson do like a rundown of everybody who's flip-flop on this. There are some real people who have integrity throughout, like the ones I just named. But a whole lot of of these politicians have been exposed as being only interested in advancing their own ideological agenda and using federal dollars to do so.
0: Yeah, there are very few people who I think have managed to not be hypocritical on the kind of Campus free speech um, issues, which I've been documenting and writing about for a long time, and honestly, the the pro-Palestinian speech being suppressed is nothing new. I've no, it's written not. about tons of cases of that over the years. So people have had a very selective, um, uh, selective memory for this kind of stuff, and and have have you know have not taken a principled approach. There are a couple. There are people like Glenn Greenwald, like you and I. There are good organizations um, like the Foundation for um, Individual Rights and Expression. That used to be the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, specifically just looking at campuses. Now yeah. they do broader work, but they, you know, have called out and documented and listed um, attempts to disinvite or fire or cancel professors and students that. You know, come from every direction, but it, it's it's really a small number of people who have kept their integrity on this.
1: Yeah, well, during a town hall in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Nikki Haley uh, flexed her war hawkishness while blasting the G O GO, D, I Well, blasting the G O P. I think it's supposed to say. Let's watch.
0: I think the D O D department. Oh, of sorry, sorry.
1: During a town hall in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Nikki Haley flexed her war hawkishness while blasting the DOD. Let's watch.
3: Our military ready for future wars, which are artificial intelligence, cyber, space, and make sure that they have the equipment they need to defend themselves when we're at land, air, or sea. We've got to be smart. We've got to be ready. I'm tired of talking about a Department of Defense. I want a Department of Offense.
1: All right. So she wants to go back to it being a, a war department. And there is obviously some some cohort in the United States of America that is is uh, ag- agrees with her, generally speaking. You, you saw O.J. Simpson after one of the earlier debates saying, I really like uh, Nikki Haley's foreign policy and I wish she and Vivek Ramaswamy could just come together for a winning ticket. But do you think that this is going to get her very far in the, in the Republican primary?
0: No, I think it's totally at odds with what not all, but many uh, Republican voters are looking for in a candidate. Uh, she's just a total return to the foreign policy views of the Republican Party that uh, that, had, that captured the party during the Bush era, during um, during the aughts, for, in the post-9/11 mm-hmm. landscape that captured George W. Bush, who who did not actually ru- George W. Bush when he ran in 2000. It's it's interesting to always remember did not run as a neoconservative interventionist. Um, he he during the campaign he said he talked a lot about like not being the world's policeman and leaving the rest of the world alone to figure it out and, and that we have to look at toward america and then totally did a, you know a 180 on that in in the wake of 9/11 and led the republican party down this i think ruinous Path, both in terms of the policy and in terms of uh, strategic, because his policies alienated and infuriated um, uh, Republican voters who did not actually agree with the elites on uh, on, on these issues and or agree with Nikki Haley. So he, she's just a, a total return to that. Um, she's obviously she's rhetorically gifted. Um, she is polling well, I think, on the strength of her kind of. Character and her presentation as a normal, acceptable mm-hmm. figure. Um, she maybe comes across as a more moderate Republican on some other issues, on social issues, on abortion, maybe more uh, palatable. But again, it, it goes to show who gets termed like a non-extremist by right. the media. She's considered um, a, a more acceptable, more acceptable to to the mainstream. Even though her foreign policy views, well, they are more acceptable to the mainstream, frankly, because the mainstream is hawkish. The mainstream is neoconservative. Even when the mainstream—what well, we're talking about are liberals, otherwise liberal people on foreign policy, they're, uh, they're, they're hawks time and time again. Yeah. So— but The um,
1: normal thing to do is to recall to tens of Department thousands of, of Israeli kids yeah. to go and fight a bunch of Palestinian kids and die in the streets for some un- S- unspecified mm-hmm. agenda an outcome. I think Vivek Ramaswamy is completely right when he says, just saying we got to fund them endlessly without having a plan for a ground invasion yeah. is one of the most radical things you su- could suggest. And the fact that that is not what's considered to be radical in the American foreign policy context is very
0: telling. Yeah, it's just—it's it's very telling. And again, I think it is a misread of what the base actually wants. A, a main and important reason that Republicans decided they liked Donald Trump was because he articulated something different here. And Nikki Haley is offering more of the same on this specific issue. We'll continue to evaluate the candidates. More rising in just a minute.
1: Political commentators Bill Maher and Candace Owens recently discussed the impact they believe big pharma and COVID vaccines have had on children.
6: FORCING it and on and in children who never needed it for this who yeah. the least likely and they're so
4: sick. The kids have never been sicker and that's right, never I start been my, my series by asking, these kids have never been more vaxxed. We're the most vaxxed c- country in the entire world. You know, we have these uh high infant mortality rates when weighed against third world countries and you're being told that this is because we're super healthy. You got kids seventy five vaccines. When I was a kid it was it was twelve.
1: In 2022, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommended all children six months through five years of age receive a COVID-19 vaccine.
0: And on a recent episode of the Joe Rogan Experience, host Joe Rogan attacked Big Pharma's alleged forcing of COVID-19 vaccines on children to protect their pockets.
4: Last year, only 17 percent of Americans got the fall COVID booster. So far this year, it's under three percent per Bloomberg. Well, I guess if you're like an old person, you would be real Tempted to get that and maybe it would Mm -hmm. help you if you're really old and you have a weak immune system It might give you a boost but to give it to kids like to give it to eight-year-olds. There's no reason for that They know there's no reason for that There's no data that shows there's a good reason for that that That's one of the first things we knew it didn't is that it didn't kill That's what's the scariest things they're they're willing to do it to kids Mm. That's scary. Oh, yeah, because there's a massive amount of profit in it No one wants to think that they think like that, but they do
0: the podcast also went into conversation about Aaron Rodgers' early vocal opposition to the COVID vaccines.
4: Because the, the the data for young people from, I think it's age, whatever it is, 12 to 49 is up way, like very high. Right. A, 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 some I read something about it being around 40%, which is crazy. Man, I can't- all-cause <laughs> mortality. I can't- uh... I can't think of someone who's been vindicated more than Aaron Rodgers in, oh, <laughs> in all of this. Yeah, because I remember. So I remember when he when he first went out, I was so mad because I was like, "Come on, you know, you're the, yeah. you're supposed to be the face." You know, I'm right. still very vaccinated. and at the time, <laughs> I'm a big Niners fan. So the 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 Packers were supposed to, supposed to play Kansas City, who had just beat the Niners in the Super Bowl, and Kansas City was like shaky. So I was like, "Oh, Aaron, if you." F- get them at the right time, you could cripple their season, and then Aaron, so I was very like, oh man, Aaron, take the, and now I'm like, oh wow, I'm glad, like, I'm glad that someone was
0: like, hey, I know what's right for my body. I mean, I think what you're seeing with a lot of these conversations is the ongoing pent up frustration that the choice to get vaccinated was taken away from a lot of people. And, uh, and these commentators are really upset about that. And, I, again, I just think it should be up to you, and you should weigh the evidence to decide whether it's the right choice for you. As Rogan points out there, I think, for, particularly for older Americans, continuing to get boosted probably is a good idea. Um, of course, you can look into that yourself. Like he says, if you're, uh, if you're a much younger American, there's not a lot of evidence it's doing you um, much good, particularly if you've already been uh, infected, but uh, unless you have an underlying uh, health yeah, that's condition. A um, that's a pretty significant unless.
1: It's a pretty significant unless. And I, I do sometimes feel like these commentators are doing a disservice to the public when they act as though the average American isn't, frankly, overweight or obese, has a comorbidity like diabetes or asthma, The idea that it's just old people in America are sick is so off base. Part of what I think is one of the more compelling arguments that RFK Jr. makes is about how pervasive chronic disease is. And you can't simultaneously be interested in a conversation about how sick Americans are across the board without also taking into account that that makes you more vulnerable than, yes, a perfectly happy, healthy eight-year-old. But that is not the situation that a lot of parents are in. It's also worth noting that only 39% of children ages 5 to 11 got vaccinated, are are vaccinated, are up to date on their vaccinations, I should say. So it does seem like people do have a choice and are exercising that choice not to vaccinate their children. So again, I understand the frustration around mandates and people who are losing their jobs and the like, but this conversation is increasingly going in directions that seem kind of listless and untethered to any kind of policy response just feels like people complaining and now just saying things, some of which aren't true, and that could be leading, leading people to make bad health decisions for themselves because of angst that was maybe legitimate, but no longer has any basis in well, policy. I mean, it, I
0: mean, it took complaining to strip away some of those policies, right? I mean, they were continuing, and it's still, on many college campuses, they do require um, up-to-date up to um, boosters, which doesn't correspond with any medical um, necessity. Um, it, it is true, if you have an underlying condition, um, I think the evidence weighs more strongly in favor of, of getting vaccinated. And also, I, you know, I should say for the record, and I say this whenever we have this conversation, I am not particularly persuaded by the, um, by the evidence I've been shown for the idea that the vaccines are harmful. Candace Owens was kind of um, leaning into that in her conversation with Bill Maher. Um, I, I've seen. Obviously, we've seen the, the concerns about um, blood clotting, specifically for I think the teenage male population. Um, there's some of that. Of course, COVID itself poses a risk of that as well. Um, the, the there's not a. I, I'm not. It's not that I'm very concerned about the harms of the vaccines. Um, where I think the skeptics are on much firmer ground is pointing out what was overpromised and underdelivered, and that. And again, the even even among overweight or unhealthy Americans of all ages, the vulnerable population for COVID really, 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 really is um, senior citizens. Particularly at this point in the in the in COVID still continuing to exist. So, I, as long as that is always emphasized, I, I think the other claims are within legitimate debate.
1: Well, in more COVID-related news, a former Florida Republican lawmaker has been sentenced to four months in prison for COVID-19 aid fraud. Joe Harding pleaded guilty in March to several charges, including wire fraud for fraudulently collecting $150,000 in pandemic relief funds, quote, earmarked for small businesses. According to The Guardian, Harding's, Harding's brother-in-law, Patrick Walsh, was sentenced to over uh, to, uh, more years in prison uh, for a separate scheme to obtain a small business funds during the pandemic, during which he fraudulently received $5 million in COVID-related funding, according to the Department of Justice. Yep, these, these ones, I think, are no-brainers. And, and to the extent that you're concerned about the conflict of interest between the government and these vaccine programs and their incentives to... Um, allow uh, these pharmaceuticals to make money, pharmaceutical companies to make money because of their lobbying interest. I'm 100% on board with that. I think those are bigger conversations to be had about limiting corporate spending and politics. But, again, these kind of vague claims that are get made are not re- well, well geared toward actually making the kind of reforms that can make sure our government is making recommendations based on public health and not on Pfizer's returns.
0: Well, I mean, this is a case where, you know, someone fraudulently applied for and received, um, you know, COVID money for their, um, small business. Um, obviously this massive, um, uh, doling out of taxpayer uh, money for various, um, for, for causes during the pandemic is not a policy I supported. Um, you know, I think we've probably only begun to scratch the surface in all the fraudulent and improper ways, um, this money was spent. I've, I've called out, a couple times how, you know, the massive amount of the billions, hundreds of billions of dollars that were given to schools to make them um, more COVID safer in terms of ventilation and other things, that it, it seems that money was just—was not spent on that purpose whatsoever. And, um, and I, I think uh, we are only probably beginning to understand um, all of the uh, bad, way, the, the inefficient way. If we we're going to spend this money, at least we should do it to improve um, to improve the, the situation in schools or in public infrastructure or, or other things. And it and and we're going to learn that it absolutely was it was used to line people's pockets.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I, I do also think it's interesting to look at what very affluent, connected people are still doing. And I do think what do they call it? Like Davo safe, something like that. They have some word for the gap between how the rich and powerful are treating COVID versus the rest of us. And it tends to be the case, history tends to bear out, that when there are these inequities, when the government is mis- misrepresenting safety standards and the like, rich people know what the real deal is because um, they have access to that kind of information and the tools to protect themselves. And I and I do wonder about some of these long-term effects and the like and whether we're gonna all look back um, and horror at the indifference that we've kind of cultivated as a society to just oh we're just going to get COVID once a year for the rest of our lives. Um, it's such a new disease, and not knowing the long-term impacts of it, um, you know the kind of neurological impacts with people losing their taste and things like that, the long-term cardiovascular impacts, um, how it's going to affect people who did get, have worse you know bad cases of COVID, hospitalization, and the like as they age. You know, all of this is a public health concern that's going to come and fall on the taxpayer at some point if this exacerbates the chronic illness problems we have in the United States. So I'm grateful to doctors who continue to study this, and we will report on any new information that comes out about the state of the COVID pandemic.
0: Well, that does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, we will actually have 2024 GOP hopeful Vivek Ramaswamy joining us. That's very exciting. You won't want to miss it. And if you haven't heard, we've brought back an old tradition of answering your questions in the form of Rising AMA. Ask us anything in the comment section, and we will answer as many questions as we can. That airs on YouTube on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m.
1: Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts.
0: Are you getting excited for Halloween yet, Priyana? <sighs>
1: I am. I'm deliberating. Still having a party, and that's causing me some stress. But generally speaking, I, thought I thought love you said the holiday. You were going to
0: have a party. I thought we. I, I thought we Covered that already. All right. I got to persuade <laughs> Brianna to have a party, so I have another excuse <laughs> to wear my costume. Bye bye, everybody. Bye bye.